This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on episode 10 of season two, we're joined by Dr. Shama Chatterton, research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, Alberta. For the past 10 years, Shama's work has focused on soil-borne diseases and root rot pathogens of pulses, primarily pea crops, but also lentils and dry beans. Before that, she studied similar diseases in greenhouse crops like cucumbers and peppers in Vancouver. Today's episode focuses on the tools Shama and her colleagues are developing to more accurately and efficiently test for disease presence in soils for pathogens like Ephanomyces and Fusarium. You may have already listened to episode five of this season with Dr. Alan McKay talking about the predict bee test in Australia. This is a similar approach, except it's focused more on peas and lentils rather than chickpeas, and of course in Canada as opposed to Australia. Another key difference in today's episode is that we're going to go into more detail of how these tools work and how they compare with older tools to help manage Canadian pulse growers' biggest problem. You know, the biggest issue that we're facing with pulse crops is these root rot diseases, particularly of pea and lentil. They're caused by a number of pathogens. Really, we call it a root rot complex. But one of the number one pathogens in that root rot complex is an organism called Aphanomyces eutyches. This is a pathogen that is fairly specialized to pea and lentil. It has a very unique life cycle, part of which produces resting spores. We call them oospores. But they are these large single-celled organisms with very, very thick cell walls. And that makes them able to survive in the soil for a number of years. So the problem is, if you grow pea or lentil crop, and then you notice that you have a root rot issue in your field one year, our recommendation now is to stay out of that field for at least six to eight years. We are still trying to determine what exactly that avoidance period should be. But then, so one of the big questions that producers would have is, well, when is it safe for me to go back into that field? And when can I plant pea and lentils again? So that's what we're trying to develop some tools so that producers can test their soils, get an idea of what pathogens are in their soils, the quantity of pathogens in their soils, and then know whether it's safe to plant pea or lentil again. The idea behind these tools they're developing is to lower the risk for farmers, make it easier to get information about this disease presence, and allow them to make more data-driven decisions about what to plant and when. You know, I guess the older method would be doing a soil bait test. And that is quite labor-intensive. It takes a lot of time, and what you have to do is you have to go and collect soil, submit it to a lab that offers the test. They grow out peas and lentils in the soil see how they do, and then let you know whether you can plant peas or lentils again. Or you just take a risk and think, okay, it's been six to eight years, I'm going to go and put a pea or lentil crop in that field and let's see how we do, right? And so at first, there's actually not a lot of commercial testing labs that offer a soil bait test because you need a lot of greenhouse space to be able to do that. It's labor intensive because you have to collect, you know, kilograms of soil in order to get a good idea of what's going on across your field. And then it takes three to four weeks to grow out those plants to see how they do. So we wanted to develop some new tools, new DNA-based tools, where you need smaller amounts of soil, uh, very rapid test, and very specific for exactly the pathogens that you're looking for. 
And creating those tools is exactly what they've done. With a small sample, they're able to identify whether or not that targeted disease is present in a farmer's soil. Okay, so the idea here is that we take a certain quantity of soil, um, you know, about 500 grams of soil from your field. And from that 500 grams, we actually only need about 250 milligrams. So it's a very small amount. And then what happens is that soil gets kind of incubated with buffers and different beads, like stainless steel beads, and they get shaken up and ground at very high speeds. So basically, we're trying to pulverize everything that's in that soil and crack open the cells. We want to crack open the cells to be able to pull that DNA out. And then we end up with kind of a slurry of all the DNA that's possible in that soil. And, you know, there's tons of different microorganisms in soil, so we have, you know, just a mixed slurry of DNA. And so then to be able to figure out, well, is our target organism in and amongst this slurry of DNA, we develop these, they're called primers, but you can think of them kind of like barcode readers. So we know what the target barcode is of our organism, and in this case, it would be something like the Phanomyces. And then we add these primers or sort of specific barcode readers that, that attach to our target. And then we go through this amplification cycle. It's called uh, the polymerase chain reaction. Very common in molecular biology. And that just amplifies up our target. So, you know, if we started out with one or two little copies of our Phanomyces DNA in our tube of the DNA slurry, you get this amplification step. So that's thousands, and then we can actually read thousands because we can't read one or two. So it goes through this whole amplification step until it's actually kind of readable by our machines. And then it gets put through the machine and the machine basically spits out the number and says, this is the amount of copies that you have of this target gene. So essentially what they're doing is they're counting the ooze spores of that pathogen. Shama hopes this will lead to the ability to quantify the amount of disease presence in a soil and start to establish thresholds to help a farmer determine when they should and should not plant. So we're trying to uh, use DNA-based methods to count ooze spores. They're tricky to work with. We've tried just extracting them from soil because they're fairly large in a microscopic sense. And you can see them quite well under a microscope. So, you know, one of the first things we thought was, why can we just extract them from soil and count them under a microscope? But you get very, very poor extraction. So you end up with very, very low numbers when you know that you have much higher numbers. So, you know, just a straight microscopy count doesn't seem to work because they appear to be very tightly bound to the soil particles. I'm not a soil scientist, so I don't know a lot about the chemistry of soil, but it also really depends on the type of soil that you have. So these heavy clay soils, I think the ooze spores can bind very tightly to that clay and then you just can't pull them out. Whereas if you had maybe a sandier soil, you would get a better count. But what it means is that you're getting a very inconsistent count back from different kinds of soils. So that gives you an idea of what's happening in the lab. But what does this look like from the farmer's perspective? I mean, if they want to take advantage of these types of tests, what do they need to do? Yeah, so... There's two different times that you can sample, depending on what question you're trying to answer. So if you've grown a pea and lentil crop and you noticed that it did not do that well in that year, then you can collect some soil samples in the fall and submit them to the lab. 
And that basically just tells you, okay, was my issue with yield or issues that I saw in this field, was that because of these root rot pathogens? Was that because of phantomyces? And so that one is a little bit easier testing. Uh, the oospores are fresh. Everything is fresh in that soil. You still have some root pieces in there. So we get better results doing that fall soil testing right after a pea or lentil crop. But that only answers that issue of, was that why I had such a problem in my field this year? What we're trying to move towards is encouraging a spring soil sampling to or on fields that you are considering planting pea or lentils. So, you know, if the last time you planted peas, you know, four years ago, it's just our standard rotation in the absence of any diseases, you know, we like to see a three to four year rotation. If you're considering planting peas in that field and you want to know, well, am I going to have, be at a risk for root rot, then you can go in and collect samples in the spring prior to planting. And part of the advantage here is not just having data that wasn't available before, but also getting it quicker than the alternatives. Well, it'll depend on individual labs and, and how busy they are. But, you know, it's generally like in our lab, we can collect soil samples in the morning, do a DNA extraction, takes two to three hours, run your PCR assay, and that takes another two to three hours. So, you know, from start to finish, it's about a six to eight hour process. After you submit to the labs and they go through, you know, having to do all their inventory and everything like that, I think it's generally about 48 hours would be kind of the minimum. And then, you know, maybe up to a week, just depending on how many samples they're trying to process. So it's a pretty fast turnaround time compared to when I was talking about the soil bait test that you're going to have to wait three to four weeks to find out those results. Ultimately, the hope is that farmers, when armed with this data from these tools, will be able to manage these diseases in a way that allows them to keep pulses in a regular rotation without proliferating the presence of these pathogens over time. Yes, that's our expectation or that, that's our hope. You know, the issue with this crop interval period or avoidance period is, again, it's very field specific and dependent on the environment. Under wet conditions, you can see a phantomyces kind of spread across the whole field in a single year. If you have dry conditions, you'll see it um, kind of stay toward, stay in its little patches and not spread throughout the field. Um, and it'll also determine, you know, how much disease you get in that field. So, so we can provide this soil test and say your phantomyces levels are really high, but if it ends up being a dry year, you, you might end up being okay if you planted pea or lentils, but of course your, your, your risk would be much higher because you don't know, you know, it's easier for us to predict what those um, pathogen loads are in the soil than it is for us to predict environment, basically. Yeah. So we have been running some field trials looking at, okay, what is that avoidance period? How long do you have to stay out of pea and lentils? And we've had some locations where they've gone back to pretty good levels after four years. And then we've had other locations where I think we're pushing seven, eight years now even, and the levels are still really high. So it's very site-specific, which I guess is another reason why this test will be very important so that you know, you know, for your field that, okay, like I followed that recommended six to eight years and I planted peas and I still had a wreck. So if we have this test working, that will avoid those issues where you think maybe it's safe to plant peas and lentils again, and then the levels just haven't come down enough. 
Now, with something like this that's able to use such a small soil sample, the sampling technique is very important to make sure that the results are representative and actionable. Yeah, uh, and that's a good question, and that's really important. And when we looked at kind of this sampling pattern research that we did a few years ago, you know, we went into these fields pretty blind, you know, because we wanted to see, okay, well, can we detect or quantify some pathogens if we don't know much about the field history or what it looked like. You know, you're starting with these huge fields and then we're looking at, oh, what's in 250 milligrams of soil, which is about a thimbleful of soil. So, so that is the issue is making sure that it's reliable across the whole field. And so that's why we recommend uh, when we've gone out and done our sampling, we go and take samples from 10 sites when we were kind of testing whether this method works. We'll go through and random sample 10 sites and then test each of those 10 sites separately. And for the most part, we are very good at being able to find a positive sample within those 10 sites. And oftentimes in a heavily infested field, we would be able to, you know, each of those 10 sites would be positive. And so generally what we would do was choose low spots in the field or, you know, the areas uh, in the field that had very obvious water runoff tracks or where you could see where the water runs. So those are really good starting points to collect soil samples. Uh, low spots, water tracks, areas that you may have noticed in your field that just maybe yielded a little bit lower than others without really noticing that there was a root rot issue. Those are all, all really good areas to sample. But it becomes trickier when we are looking at using it as a risk assessment tool where you don't necessarily know that you're an infested field, right? And so then we've done 10 sites and then it, there you might find, well, one of those out of those 10 sites is positive. And then the question is, you know, if we mix all those 10 sites together, so we start with maybe 500 grams from 10 sites, mix it all together, it gives us our 5 kgs of soil. And then we take out 250 milligrams. Can we still detect the pathogen? And that is where it starts to get a little bit trickier because then we're starting to look at, at lower numbers. One burning question I've had on my mind about this is how do these ooze spores survive in the soil all this time, over years? It would seem that without a host, they just die away. But apparently that's not the case. Well, that's a very interesting question. They basically go into dormancy through a complex biochemical process that I think is not completely understood, but they are produced through um, fertilization. Um, you get two hyphae kind of come together. Sorry, that's very scientific. But through the process, you know, they're a single cell. They develop a very thick cell wall and have a very high lipid content that basically allows them to survive. Now, there is natural decay of these oospores in the soil, just like anything in the soil. There's lots of different microbes out there that, you know, environmental conditions. You will see these levels start to decay naturally. Um, it's estimated from some research done, I think, in the early 90s, that they have a half-life of a year. So what that means is that you're naturally going to lose half of the population every year. But when we're looking at the amount of these in the soil, you know, we're roughly looking at about a thousand oospores per gram of soil. And you look at that, you know, cutting them in half every year, that's where it can take six to eight years for them 
to naturally decay, but it does depend. So when that sort of avoidance level or cropping interval is needed will depend on what that starting level is of your new spores in the first place. So that's why we say six to eight years, and that's assuming that you're about an average of 1,000 oospores per gram of soil. But some soils can have a higher starting amount, and some can have a low. So that's why it's a bit of a ballpark of knowing exactly what that cropping interval is needed between pea and lentil. You heard her mention there 1,000 oospores per gram of soil, and that the goal is to move beyond just telling a farmer whether or not the pathogen is present, but to actually be able to compare it with some sort of economic threshold. Shama says, though, more work needs to be done before we're at the point that that can happen. Yeah, so we're trying to get to the quantification point. Uh, right now, for the most part, we're just looking at presence or absence, just because of the sensitivity of the test. And also determining what those thresholds are is part of the quantification step. So I know a number of the labs here in Canada that offer a test are trying to move more towards a quantification tool. But for now, we are looking just at presence or absence. And basically, we're saying, well, if it's present at levels that we can detect it, then don't grow peas or lentils. That challenge when it comes to thresholds is even more difficult when you consider that the presence of one pathogen may change the allowable threshold for another pathogen, as is the case with the Phanomyces and Fusarium. We're looking at uh, Fusarium species for now, so sort of a mix of Phanomyces and Fusarium, and trying to figure out that quantification step for both of them. Um, and it's challenging because a threshold for Aphanomyces levels can be different if you also have Fusarium present. So, you know, say in the absence of Fusarium, we might say your threshold is about 100 oospores per gram of soil, and that's, that's about the level that we've come at. If you add Fusarium to that mix, then that threshold of Aphanomyces actually comes down, and then you might only need you know, 50 to 75 oospores per gram of soil. So when we're looking at trying to quantify multiple pathogens, then we also have to determine, well, what's the threshold for these pathogens if they're in this mixture? And then the other issue with fusarium is there's lots of different species that can be very hard to tell apart, and not all of the species are involved in the disease. So we have to start kind of picking and choosing what species do we look at, how do they interact with the phanomyces, um, and then how do we quantify all of these at the same time. So we have a really good test where we can target four or five species at once in one reaction, but the challenge is figuring out what that means biologically. So yes, we can detect five species in your soil, but how does that contribute to risk? Now, up to this point in the episode, we've sort of talked about the tool and its potential to help farmers. But before we close out our episode, I definitely don't want to just gloss over the fact that developing tools like this is extremely challenging. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple of challenges, I guess, to make it seem like it's really easy we've developed the tool, but we've actually run into a couple of challenges. The first one is really I guess, having what we call like your barcode reader. So you have to know what barcode to read in order to then develop the barcode reader. And it can be really challenging to develop the barcode because lots of species are very similar 
to each other. So there is a lot of work going into trying to find one that's going to work and that's not going to give you a false positive that you think you're looking at a Phantomyces eutyches and it turns out you're actually looking at Pythium or some related species, right? So, so that's the first challenge. Um, and then the second challenge is choosing a barcode that's going to be quantitative. You know, I said that there was some issues with Fusarium and that's because the best barcode for Fusarium only has one copy of that barcode in a cell. And so that means that you need to have a lot more to be able to detect them. Whereas the one that we're looking at for a Phantomyces, there's a hundred copies within a cell. So that means, you know, one cell, you have a hundred targets. So that's the challenge too, is, is really the barcode. And then the other big challenge is working in a soil environment. A soil matrix is very complicated. There's a lot of inhibitors in soil that prevent that reaction where you can amplify the DNA. So you can end up with a lot of false negatives. And then the other challenge is just the nature of a phanomyces, those oospores itself. Because they're so, have such a thick wall, it can actually be very difficult to crack open that wall to get inside the DNA. And it does seem like that becomes more challenging as soils get drier. And probably what's happening is that, you know, it's going into a, not scientific, I just call it super hardcore <laughs> dormancy. As it's getting drier, the conditions are getting harsher. It's like that cell wall just gets thicker and thicker and doesn't want to get cracked open. So that's been a challenge, too, with developing those tools. And it's partly why, you know, we talk a lot about quantification being the gold standard, but it's partly why quantification is difficult because we can't know for sure that we're quantifying the right amount if we don't know for sure that we've cracked open all those cells that are in that soil. And Shama hopes that this is just the beginning. The idea is that these tools are a good foundation to build off of for improved management strategies in the future. We're trying to build a, a research vision for managing root rots right now. So a lot of thought and, and questions going into that. And like you said, you know, I think the foundation is going to be the soil test and being able to not just presence absence, but, you know, good quantifications so that you know what you're dealing with. And then depending on what your levels are, you know, that will determine, okay, what's my avoidance period. But also, you know, if you find, okay, you're just under that threshold and you say, okay, you can probably go, go ahead and plant peas or lentils. There's definitely going to be some management that you're going to need to get into that field. And so we are looking at things uh, like seed treatments, you know, that in some of our trials, we have found that seed treatments, they don't work that well in a very highly infested field. But when we're starting to look at some of the, these fields that maybe are just below the threshold, have lower levels, uh, seed treatments are definitely a good, a good option to try to reduce that disease severity so you don't get spread throughout your whole field. We're also looking at, well, rotations with non-pulse crops. I guess that's just another way of avoidance, but the idea is, well, can we put some other pulse crops in there because they're so good for uh, your soils and for the environment. So what are some other pulse crops that we can put in there? Uh, we have been looking at intercropping as well uh, with brassicas. And what's interesting there is that we see a yield bump from intercropping of the pea uh, when it's intercropped with a mustard, but we don't see a, a big difference in disease severity. So there's some other sort of mechanisms going on that's helping that pea get the yield bump over, you know, it's monocrop. 
uh, neighbors, uh, but we don't quite understand it. And knowing your field history, I think, is very important. You know, on top of that soil test, like we were talking about, the environment is, is a huge issue. And knowing what happened in your field the last time you planted pea and lentils, of course, is going to be uh, very important. Yeah, and I think, you know, not a lot of management options at the moment. Uh, a lot of things that we are looking at and hoping to kind of build, you know, like a tiered sort of package, like, okay, if you have your soil test at this level, then, you know, all you can do is avoidance. Your soil test maybe is a little bit lower below that threshold. So let's look at partially resistant cultivars when they're available, using a seed treatment, um, you know, maybe looking at, well, intercropping. The fertility can be very important as well. I think there's some question about seeding dates. That's some research that's actually out of the the states looking at kind of seeding dates. So, you know, yeah, kind of balancing this agronomic practices with um, partially resistant cultivars when, when we have them. And that's, you know, we're all waiting for that. But I think with having these tools, it's why I say it, you know, will be the foundation of our, our sort of management strategies going forward is having a tool that's reliable and consistent and, and accurate. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Shama Chatterton for taking the time to share her work on the podcast today. These tools are currently available in Canada, so if it's something you're interested in, you can reach out to her with questions. We'll put a link to her information in the show notes. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing these episodes every other week throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.